Hi friends, Dr. Shelley here. Guess what? You're not going to believe this. I have another book coming out from Llewellyn Worldwide. It will be out on December 8th and it's called Blast from the Past, Healing Spontaneous Past Life Memories. So earlier in the 2000s, I wrote a book series, which I have discussed on the Healing Arts Podcast, about a phenomenon I call supretrovi, spontaneous past life memories. This is when we're trying to mind our own business, and yet we're hit with this picture, thought, or feeling about something that happened to us in the past. This was happening to me all the time while I was traveling to other places, and what I found through my research is that I truly believe this happens to every single person alive. The book has some incredible endorsements from people like Coast to Coast's George Norrie and others, and it would mean the world to me if you will go out and pre-order my book so that you can have it before the holidays when it comes out on December 8th. So check out Blast from the Past, Healing Spontaneous Past Life Memories, now available in pre-order on Amazon.com. And thank you so much for your support. Namaste. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hey there, welcome to a very, very special episode of the Healing Arts Podcast. I was not planning on putting an episode out today, but the most amazing thing happened. I got a chance to interview one of my all-time favorite writers, Dean Kuntz. It's incredible. You know, it is so funny because I have been asking um, you and you have been writing me and telling me who you most want me to interview. And I have managed to get some of those people on the show. And so I had to sit down with myself and say, well, who do I most want to meet on the Healing Arts Podcast? And Dean Kuntz is really at the very, very top of my personal list. I have been reading his books for years. And over the years, I've actually been in touch with him a couple of times. I've I've written him letters. I think I told you all earlier in this podcast adventure in one of the earlier seasons, we did a show about my very strange book called Damned, True Tales of the Cursed. And so years ago, I had written Dean Kuntz a letter because I wanted to see if he would give me an endorsement because the book is actually, it is nonfiction, but it's really, really creepy. And I thought it might be a, you know, an idea. 
so he actually wrote me back and he said, you know, that actually sounds so interesting. I can't read it because I'm afraid that it would be inspiring. <laughs> and I thought, actually, that sounds really complimentary. And so I just took it for what it is. I, I can understand somebody of his stature. He can't be reading other people's books or anything because, you know, people might accuse him of plagiarism or something. So then I decided a few years ago also to write him again and ask him about past lives with pets because I had read his book, A Big Little Life, which we talk about in this interview that you're getting ready to hear. And once again, of course, he wrote me and he told me um, that he, he just doesn't have time because he's got this series of books that he's trying to finish for his publisher. And you know what's so funny is I think he was talking about the series, the Nameless series that we are talking about in this interview. And so I just recently, I am working on a bunch of new projects, new book projects myself. And I have folders filled with different ideas and thoughts that I'm having. And so I pulled out this stuff and I found Dean Koontz's name and I thought, you know what, I'm going to just see if I can reach out and write him and see if I can be on or have him on the Healing Arts podcast. Well, I'm telling you, long story short, here he is. It, I can't even believe it. I am in shock. And if you go out to my YouTube channel, you'll see my shocked face when I first have him on the show. I mean, he's sitting in this beautiful library filled with books. It was just so surreal. Um, you know, it's like a dream come true that has exceeded and surpassed even my wildest expectations. So the feeling of having one of my life streams of getting to meet someone who I have so admired, um, having that come true is really it's wonderful and simultaneously it's overwhelming and it makes me feel kind of weird. And so um, the other thing I haven't told you yet here publicly, but back in March, I was on a television show. Um, they flew me out. I'll tell you more about it once they announce that it's actually going to be aired. But let's just say, long story short, I met another one of my mentors who I have again, most wanted to meet more than pretty much anyone else in the world. And when I came back from that experience as well, it's very similar to how I feel now that I've met Dean Koontz. It's like, oh my God, you know, I need some new goals. I feel like my bucket list is complete all of a sudden. So don't worry, there's always more where that came from, but I'm going to have to dig deep and find some other new people who I most want to meet because this is incredible. I guess it just goes to show, you know, if you put things down in writing and if you have some goals in your mind, you don't need to have any attachment to them. But if you just keep them in the deepest parts of your mind, but yet move forward and start taking action to make those things happen, you can really make your dreams come true. It's incredible. So. Along those lines, let me just say I will be busy um, coming up with some new goals <laughs> for myself, um, but I think you're going to love my interview with Dean Koontz. It was super fun. I actually got a chance to ask him every single thing that I've been thinking about asking him, 
and I think you'll enjoy it. On another uh, note, I did just also go to the Dallas Psychic Fair on Sunday out in person. It was swamped. I saw so many people. I actually saw some of my students who I met online in 2020. They were actually there. I forget that, you know, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we have millions of people here. So there's a lot of people I met online. And so that was really cool. And I had a great time. It was so wonderful to be out in person seeing people. And collectively, there was just a almost a huge sigh from people. People just, y'all have been, you know, all of us, we've just been through so much. It was like there was just a collective, like when you ask people, what do you want to work on today? Because I was doing energy healing. They would almost just go, oh, like they can't even express it because it's too overwhelming. It's too all-encompassing. So it was really, really amazing to see everybody, and I enjoyed it so much. Um, I will be out many times in the month of July, and I hope that I can see you then. So anyway, enough of all this. You need to check it out. We're going to listen to my bucket list interview with the wonderful, amazing, and talented Dean Kuntz. So let's check it out together. Hey, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I don't know if you know this about me. Um, I've got a lot of different writers who I follow over the years in different genres, but my all-time favorite, favorite fiction author is with us today, Dean Kuntz, number one New York Times bestselling author, has an amazing new series out that I've had the privilege to read. Um, let me just read you his bio. He's the author of many number one bestsellers. Uh, his books have sold over 500 million copies in 38 languages, and the Times of London has called him a literary juggler. He lives in Southern California with his wife, Gerda, and their golden retriever, Elsa, and the enduring spirits of their goldens, Trixie and Anna. Dean, it is a complete thrill and an honor to have you here. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Let's see if I can behave myself. <laughs> I'll have to try myself. So we'll do our best. That's all we can do. Um, you, your latest book, you have so many that have come out. Um, the latest is going to be released on June 10th, Nameless Season 2. This is Amazon Original Stories. And so tell us about Nameless Season 2. Well, uh, it, I'll give you a little history of the, how this came about. Amazon came to me, Amazon Original Stories, and said, uh, we'd like you to write six stories featuring the same character. Uh, novelettes, about 10 to 15,000 words, and maybe sometimes a little longer. And uh, I came up with this character and I kind of got very intrigued with him. Uh, but uh, they said, we're gonna give these stories away through Amazon Prime. Uh, huh, uh, how does that work? I'm not used to just giving it away. And they said, oh no, we'll pay you for it, but we'll, we'll give them away. And the number of downloads have exceeded our expectations. And uh, I enjoyed so much this character who is in, just in a nutshell, he's, he has amnesia, uh, but he thinks it's engineered. Uh, it isn't natural. 
and he thinks that he wanted his past erased because there's something in it that he can't live with. And he goes on a series of missions and he has handlers uh, and he's a tormented man, uh, but a very effective one. In season one, we found out sort of who he was and why and what there is in his past that he cannot cope with. In season two, uh, we learn more about him. We learn more about that past. Every one of the stories is a standalone story, but there's an overriding arc. Uh, and I had so much fun with season one, but both Amazon original stories and I agreed that two seasons was enough. So the second season should be so exciting that it outstrips the first, but gets to a point where you say that is the perfect ending. Now you never know if you're gonna get to a perfect ending until you've gotten there and you say, okay, I think that's it. But uh, I had great fun with these. And this character is, he's a very, he's a, he's sort of like the male version of Jane Hawk that I've written five yes. novels about. Uh, he, he, he's just unstoppable, but at the same time, he's tormented and tortured in a way that Jane isn't quite. And uh, I, I just had so much fun, <coughs> excuse me, with the first season. And now with this one, uh, <coughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. <clears throat> it's allergy season and I think I've just been hit with an attack. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, it'll recover. Uh, I, I just, I'll sound, I'll sound a little bit like some of the super villain until this passes. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, I had so much fun with season one that season two was a joy to write. So I'm hoping everybody who likes season one signs up for two and we'll maybe get some more people out there finding out about Nameless because uh, he also has this, these little abilities. He's not a superhero himself, but he has this sort of clairvoyance at moments, but it sometimes seems more of a curse than it is a blessing because he never knows if what he's saying is of the past or of the future or uh, something. Times he's getting glimpses that are actually his amnesia breaking down. Um, and where he goes in this one is pretty dark, but pretty exciting too, I think. I loved it. Um, the thing that I think is such a gift about great fiction, the kind of fiction that you always deliver is the idea that, you know, I. Take a look at the first paragraph. Next thing I know, I don't know where I went. Four hours has passed. And now I'm I'm totally into this land that you've created. I mean, this is so entertaining. The thing I loved about it also is that it is, they're, they're very, very short in a sense, but yet you're always planting that seed at the end because he's he it's very flashy. I, I really love that too. I love the um, you know, he's jet setting around and he's got this organization that he doesn't know exactly who they are and he's got the best accommodations and he's fully funded to go do the things that he is um, supposed to be doing but you're leading us just from one into the other I just don't see how anybody could not pick up the entire thing and just read the whole thing because it's just so wonderful and it's so fast-paced I loved it yeah gee I'll come on the show anytime hey <laughs> And, you know, I like to talk about um, karma. And so that seems to be one of the things 
that I really loved about this too. You've talked about these kinds of things in other books, but Nameless seems to be on a mission that has to do with karma. So tell us a little bit about that without, there will be no spoiler alerts, friends. Okay, but to the best that we can without spoiling anything. Well, uh, he made a mistake in his past. Uh, now, what uh, some people said to me, wow, I thought he did something a lot worse than this. Uh, after they found out what it is that has led him to become what he's become. Uh, and I, my answer to that is, it doesn't matter whether you think it was a smaller offense. To him, it was everything. And, uh, and he lost everything he cared about. And if he could have made one less selfish decision, none of this would have happened. Uh, so that's the way he sees it. And there's something about that that particularly pleased me as a writer, that it wasn't something spectacularly horrendous he did or some terribly fail, failure of his uh, character. It was something that any of us might have done in his situation without thinking. And that is what makes it, I think, so poignant because it was a small decision. It seemed like the right thing to do at the moment. But when fate comes in and this happens, wow, then it has much more power. It, it, that thing which I've always been fascinated in fiction and in life, that the smallest things we do sometimes can have gigantic effect beyond what we imagine. I wrote an entire novel about that, in fact, called From the Corner of His Eye, um, which takes the idea of quantum mechanics the intricate connections of everything in the world. Uh, the, the idea of the butterfly effect, the flight of butterflies in Tokyo affects the weather in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and I read a lot of quantum mechanics and I thought, you know, uh, human relationships are the same way. The tiniest thing you do reverberates in other lives. And that's why it's kind of important to think about how you treat people and what you do in life, because it has ramifications you never saw coming. Uh, in Nameless's case, uh, uh, he, has, he has the ability, because of who he is and what he's able to put together, that he's able to try to compensate for this mistake he made by going after people who don't make little mistakes, but make very big decisions that affect other people's lives in horrible ways. And so that's sort of what, as you're saying, karma, uh, by, by making those people face up to the fact of what they did. Um, and it isn't nameless that always takes them out. Sometimes it's their associates and it's they themselves because of the situations that nameless sets up. Um, so he isn't, some people have said he's an angel of vengeance. I don't see him as vengeance. Right. Uh, uh, or some have said a vigilante. He's definitely not a vigilante. Vigilantes act entirely on emotion. Nameless finds out who's doing the bad thing. He gets all the information and he acts on pure fact. And that makes him different than a vigilante. But also the vengeance isn't on his own behalf. He's, he's serving penance, actually. He does these things, he risks his life, he intervenes to save other people from some of these bad people as an act of penance for what he did. And I think that makes him kind of more complex and more interesting 
than just a guy who's going out there and shooting someone because they're bad. Absolutely. Yeah. And in season two of Nameless, which everyone needs to read immediately, he does. Nameless himself reminds us throughout the series that he is not a vigilante because to just go take somebody out without having them, like you said, get the awareness of what they did and why they're in that predicament would not be um, the just rewards that they so richly deserve, depending on what crimes they've committed. And the other thing um, that I found so interesting, you know, in the real world, we all see people who are doing, you know, horrible things. They, we don't understand how they're getting away with things. And so in this series, it seems really um, very satisfying to readers to see that people who are in the shadows, who do seem to be getting away with things, that they really are going to get some karma here in the current life. You know, I, I guess... I think a lot about karma. So I always think, well, you know, maybe they're not going to get it this time, but they're going to get it in the next life. But Nameless then gets to take that upon himself to create these scenarios that are so complicated. Because like you said, he's not always the one doing it. He's setting it up so that they just have to face themselves. And it's just so wonderful. It's so satisfying as a reader to see, you know, the bad guys getting what's coming to them in that way. Yeah, get, see them getting what's coming to them and see them achieving at last some little flash of self-awareness uh, that they have lacked in the past. And uh, maybe they, some of them may fully understand why this is about to happen to them and other ones just begin to get a glimmer of why and, uh, and where this payback is coming from. So yeah, I think that's the, uh, you know, my philosophy has been, I, I always have said, evil is, is a choice and it's a stupid one uh, because it never works. It works in the short term. We know a lot of people who do very bad things and get away with it for five years, 10 years. There's always a day they don't get away with it anymore and they, they pay an enormous price. Uh, or maybe once in a while we see somebody who goes a long way getting away with it. But my father always took the bad way out. My father was ultimately in life diagnosed as a sociopath when he ended up in a psychiatric ward. And, uh, and I had this firsthand lesson. Very young in life, I would think, okay, I have this choice coming. What can I do? What will my dad do? Then do just the opposite and you'll probably be okay. Um, and uh, that's sort of a thing that plays out in the stories. Uh, I never want to glamorize evil. Uh, right. uh, in a lot of the novels, I have really dark characters. It's not just they get their comeuppance. Uh, I don't want to create a character, an evil character who's glamorous, that people say, ooh, how cool. No, I want, I want to always, with that bad character, give you a sense of what a fool he is. It may be subtle, but you need to be able at times to laugh at him because what he's doing is so incredibly stupid. Um, and that uh, is something I always try to achieve in the characters that Nameless meets or that any of the others meet, that inside that evil, there's something quite ridiculous. And uh, there's, a, there's a doctor in a story called Gentle is the Angel of Death. And uh, what I say about that is he is so caring uh, he's just a very caring doctor. He cares so much 
that if he thinks your quality of life isn't good enough, he'll kill you. Uh, and that guy gets a little sense of uh, what his own philosophy means when it, it's turned on him. And that is, uh, that's very satisfying. to It was a great read. Oh my gosh. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But that at the same time crazy. that he's scary, he's just ridiculous at the same time. So that's one way I try to keep anybody from saying, oh, that's such a cool guy. I don't, I don't want them to think, I want them to think that of nameless, but I don't want them to think that of, a, of one of the bad guys. And you always, you always root for the underdogs and your books always have redemptive qualities about them. Even in Nameless Season 2, in that particular one that you just brought up, you, you have people there with Down syndrome. And I know you've written about people with autism before. Have you had experience with these people in your, in your actual life that you draw oh, yeah. upon? Yes, my, my wife and I have uh, worked for 30 some years with a, a group called Canine Companions for Independence. They produce uh, assistance dogs for people with severe disabilities. And they started a number of years ago uh, producing dogs for autistic children that can totally change the negative behavior. The child still is autistic, but the negative behavior goes away when he's paired with a socializing dog. It's an amazing thing to see. So in the course of working with them over the years, we've gotten to know literally hundreds of people with disabilities, severe ones. And it, it's, it's one reason I include them in fiction because uh, they generally are never, never appear in fiction unless the whole novel is about somebody with a disability. Uh, but I like to use them as just another character in some stories. Uh, here, this person happens to be in a wheelchair. This person happens to be a Down syndrome person. And it's, it's for a novel, it's wonderful, for a novelist, it's wonderful material because other people don't write about it. Uh, and it allows you to imagine, I wrote a book called The Bad Place in which there's a character named Thomas who is a Down syndrome uh, boy. And I fell in love with him, but I had to create, I had to imagine how does he see the world and how does he think about it? And how would I use the English language to capture that viewpoint? And uh, I, I recently mentioned this before in another interview, but it, first one ever, but this time it came up again uh, that I could mention this. I, I wrote the book, I thought this is kind of, I don't know what they're gonna do with this. They're gonna think publishers don't like you to go outside the box. And I almost always do. And a lot of the time get grief for it. Not from my current publishers who have been the best ever in that sense. And uh, uh, I sent it to my agent. My agent came back and said, uh, the bad place. I, I love this book, it's really wild, but it really works and everything. And there's one thing in it that's absolute genius. And I said, what's that? And she said, this character of Thomas, this Down syndrome boy and his point of view, it's an absolute genius. And I was very happy because it was the thing I thought they might just not want to have in the book. And um, if she felt that way, I thought the publisher would. And I said, oh, I, I just love that character so much. And I loved writing that point of view that I've thought about writing an entire novel from the point of view of a character like Thomas. My agent was very silent for a moment. And then she said, honey, there's such a thing as too much genius. <laughs> <laughs>
And I think she was wrong. I think you could do that. And, and people would be just enchanted by that character, but I've never had a chance to get back to something like that. The reason, I guess this is probably one of the multiple reasons why I've always loved your work, because I have a brother who's autistic, who's 10 years younger than me. And so I've grown up around all of these kinds of people who you're describing in your books, and you do it with such grace and humanity. Because the truth is, they are often the smartest people in the room, and the rest of us are a bunch of idiots. And you bring that spirit forth in the work. And that's one of the things I've loved about reading all of your characters over the years. I have an autistic boy in the novel Devoted uh, that, uh, that I, I had just great fun writing. And you're exactly right. Uh, many, many autistic children are very intelligent. Uh, but what they're struggling with hampers the expression of that. Uh, and, and that's why it was kind of fascinating to me the first time I ever saw when Canine Companions had produced a, an assistance dog for a boy who was autistic and how it changed his negative behavior. It was just kind of fascinating. And, uh, and it, uh, if, it, it gives him a chance to express who he is trapped in this condition. And uh, so, yeah, the world's full of people who are so different in many ways that never get written about. So it's just fun to be able to bring them into the story. And you do it so well. And speaking of the canine companions, because I, I did want to ask you, because this is how you were introduced to your beloved Trixie. Is that correct? So yes. tell us about your entree into the world of your Goldens. Well, we've been supporting uh, Canine Companions for a, quite a while, and uh, they ended up naming a campus after us, which we didn't ask. We never do that. And uh, they did it without asking us, so we didn't want them to say, tear that sign down. And uh, uh, they, uh, for years, they were saying, let us give you a release dog, some dog that didn't make it through the whole training or had a problem. And we kept saying, no, we're too busy, we're too busy. And one day I said to Jerry, you know, if we keep saying this, we're gonna be 90 years old saying we're too busy and never had the dog. So that was how we got Trixie. I called them up and said, okay, when you've got a release dog uh, that you need a home for, we'll take her. Well, Trixie had been in service with a young lady who lost both legs in a traffic accident, uh, a beautiful young woman. and. Uh, Trixie went into service with her for six months and developed an elbow problem. And once they have a joint problem, they can't be an assistance dog. So Trixie had her surgery and she came out and she came to live with us when she was three years old. And that dog, I, I thought, oh dog, it's gonna be fun. And it's gonna be this and that. What I didn't know was this dog was gonna change our lives. And she did it in numerous ways. But the first way was we were both workaholics. We still are to some degree, but I wouldn't stop work at five o'clock. I'd work on till seven uh, and then we'd have dinner and uh, I'd be working those hours seven days a week and Jerda would be in her office next door to mine working the same thing. And Trixie was with us not a week and she would suddenly, five o'clock and dogs have a sense of time. I don't know. Yeah. It's mysterious how they have a sense of time. Trixie adapted day one to daylight savings time every year. 
And it always amazed me, how does she know? She knew her feeding time had changed, all the rest. But she was there about a week and she came around the corner of my desk at five o'clock and stood looking at me with that intense way that Goldens have of looking at you. It's, and I said, what, what? She looked at me and looked at me. And I went back to the keyboard and working and about a minute or two passed. She came over, put her head under me. I didn't even know she was there. Threw my hand off the keyboard with her head, with her nose. Cute. And I said, what? What's this? I said, no, down. And I went back to type it, boom, I hit on the keyboard. And she was a very well-behaved dog because she'd been through all this training. Uh, and I, I thought this was funny. She's telling me to stop working. So I stopped. Well, she took that to mean this work. And every <laughs> night thereafter, five o'clock, she's at the corner of the desk looking at me. And pretty soon, I didn't need the training of having my hand thrown off the keyboard. I had been trained and I knew I had to stop. Uh, so I started stopping at five o'clock. That alone was an amazing difference in life. And she just made sure you had time with her, that you had time for other things than this. And it was fascinating to me how dogs are, they just intuit or they know in some psychic way so much about you. Uh, and I do not rule out that dogs are psychic. I have seen too many uh, strange things with the dogs we've had. And I know how smart they are. I mean, these assistance dogs learn an enormous numbers of commands and memorize them. And at some point I knew that Trixie had a vocabulary of two to 300 words and she kept learning. Uh, not to go on too long about this, but uh, one night during the day at time, she would stay with uh, our assistants in their office. And we had gone to dinner a couple of months before in a restaurant where we were trying to eat better. And after a couple of weeks of eating better, we got tired of that. And so we ordered, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Nachos. Nachos, yes, my assistant here just when needed. Nachos, and uh, we gave Trixie a little taste of nachos. We don't feed her much human food, but we gave her a taste of nachos and then another taste. And we did that two nights in a row, and then months passed, and we're in our assistant's office. We're talking about restaurants, and I said, oh, there's this place you have to go. They have fabulous nachos. And Trixie leaped up from the floor and came running over. And I went, oh my God. She heard the word four or five times, had it reinforced with the food. And now months later, she hears the word and she knows what that is. Uh, and I, I see dogs doing that all the time. Elsa is always learning new words. And it always startles me when she does, but uh, there's more going on there. Bonnie Bergen, who founded the idea of assistance dogs, Beyond Dogs for the Blind, uh, and now has the Bergen uh, Canine University. I think maybe I'm putting those words together wrong. Um, she told me once that dogs can learn to do anything. And she wrote a book calling, called Teach Your Dog to Read. <laughs> and she took flashcards and combined them with the regular uh, commands, the vocal commands, and dogs eventually learned when she held up a, a sign that said sit, they would sit without hearing the word. 
and she could put complex things together and the dogs would act them out. And uh, there's so much going on in those little furry heads that I find fascinating that I love writing about them. Yeah, it's fantastic. I saw something recently where they had um, a dog who was punching buttons to say words and stringing full sentences together. Mm -hmm. So it is really amazing how intelligent our animals are. And so was Elsa was also a service animal as well? Yeah, we had, after Trixie passed, we had, uh, well, after Trixie passed, uh, Jurda said, I can never go through that loss again. Uh, and I said, well, I think I can, but it's going to take a while. Took me six months, took her eight months. Then we got Anna. And uh, Anna was wonderful in her own way. Each dog is a different personality, and yet they have all the same virtues. And uh, that's about as good as it gets. And uh, uh, Anna lived a shorter life, but uh, uh, when she passed, uh, Jordan said again, I can't do this again. And then the people who were here, it happened two weeks later, some folks from CCI were here and they said, oh, I know you can't deal with a new dog, but we just got this one in. It's a home and they held up the cell phone with Elsa's picture and we both just burst into tears and said, we'll take her. <laughs> and she's been, uh, she's just been amazing. Uh, Anna failed out of training uh, because she couldn't be, she couldn't be trained to stop chasing birds. With a person in a wheelchair, the dog can't go off chasing birds. So Elsa was very bird, or Anna was very bird. Elsa, they said, she failed out after 21 months of training, except now the years have passed and they no longer say they failed out. They say she's having a career change. <laughs> and uh, in her case, it's because she doesn't want to work, she wants to cuddle. And we said, that sounds like just the kind of dog we need. And boy, is that true. This is this dog. That's all she wants to do. She wants to be with you. She wants to cuddle. Uh, once the cuddle starts, she never wants it to end. So uh, uh, they're, they're all wonderful each in their own way. They are. I think our animals really do enrich all of our lives. And I just, I love what you've done with this organization because um, it's just so helpful to so many people. So it's wonderful. I want to give a shout out also to one of your other books. That's one of my all time favorite books, which is called A Big Little Life. I will definitely be putting the links up, friends. This is your uh, book about Trixie and it's just beautiful. Um, it is a tearjerker, but it's a beautiful book about your relationship with dear Trixie. And I love it. Yeah, thank you. It was it was a, a hard book to write, actually. Uh, and, I can imagine. Uh, but it was also a joy to write. Yeah, definitely life changing, I would think. Mm -hmm. So here's something I wanted to ask. Getting back to nameless. So these, I want to make sure people understand these books from our Amazon original stories. They're going to come out so that you can just. Um, experiencing them in Kindle, and you can also hear the audio book. So if you're in the airport this summer, friends, maybe you're going to get out of the house this year. That'd be wonderful. Maybe you've, you know, you want to drive your car somewhere new. That would be great. You know, this is the perfect read because it's so fast and it's so entertaining. And it brought up a thought that I had, Dean, I wanted to ask you about. I was kind of getting concerned about the society 
um, that we've kind of gone from very complex words down to single syllables and emojis. <laughs> and so I was worried we were devolving, but now I'm wondering, are we like evolving into something that's more like, you know, the ancient Egyptians? And I feel like this is why the format of your Amazon nameless series is so fantastic fantastic because I really believe this society has a very quick attention span and that is exactly what they need is what you're delivering with this series. So what do you think about the attention span of humanity? I think that's probably true. I think it's sad because we need a lot of people, scientists, doctors, uh, that need to think in very complex terms. Uh, and we don't know what this technology is doing to the human brain, but in many ways, it is shortening the attention span. Uh, and uh, as a writer, I, I kind of like the shorter form because I'm, I'm in three weeks, I, I've reached the end of that story where it was with a novel that's six, seven months of 60 hour weeks or, or longer. So, uh, so when you're doing six stories, it kind of ends up being the same, but you're, you're getting that satisfaction of an ending again and again, instead of working toward one ending for six or seven months. So I think, yeah, I think you're gonna see more of this. Uh, I think that unfortunately, it's gonna take a lot of writers uh, who might be very good at this time to learn how to do it because this form was once very big in America. We had magazines like Saturday Evening Post and just dozens of them that published this length of fiction. And it was arguably the most popular length of fiction for 30, 40, 50 years. And then those magazines went away and full novel length was the only way to go. And for many years, there were almost no paying markets for the shorter fiction. Uh, and I think now it's going to come back for the very reasons you said, but also for others, because everybody's life is so full and so fast paced that we have smaller chunks of leisure time than we used to have. And these fit into that a lot better. Absolutely. This reminds me in the Nameless series, season two, um, I, I love how your characters sometimes tell us who some of their favorite writers are. And one of your characters was talking about the fact that like when you're a writer, um, you know, she has to trust the right, the character said, I have to trust the writer to be willing to spend this kind of time with them. And I think this is one of the reasons why I've always loved your books, because you've proven yourself someone that we can trust, we know it's going to be wonderful. And so I think that it was, it's really interesting how you get to explore this within the characters, some things that are, are really, I think, very true about how you create your material. So because don't you think it, it really is kind of a trust that we have to we have to kind of oh, yeah. trust that you're going to give us something that's going to be worth this time that we're investing. What do you think? I, I'm, I've been an obsessive uh, reader and book collector all my adult life. And there's nothing that steams me more than, than to hear how fabulous a book is, to hear it raved about, and then to pick it up and it's ineptly written or it's sluggish or, and at some point it's, I think it's incumbent upon the writer, not only to write something meaningful uh, that says something, no matter how small, about human life that we all can identify with and we feel is true, and important to give us characters we hear about, but it's also important to use the language 
and all the techniques of storytelling to make this thing flow, to make it easy to follow. Um, it's always been something of mine because as a reader, I, growing up, I was so often disappointed. And then when I would find somebody who had that magic, like a suspense writer named John D. McDonald, who I read 33 John McDonald novels in 34 days when I first discovered him. I couldn't get enough. And it was just he understood how to make it flow. And, and we have this beautiful language that can be so evocative. And it doesn't have to be difficult to read. Um, and I've it's always been an important thing of mine. And it's interesting. I have had more mail than I can tell you of people who write me and say, I never thought I liked books. And somebody said, you've got to read this one. I said, I don't like books. And then I read it and, and I understood it. And then the next thing they'll tell you is, you see, I'm dyslexic. And I've had so much of that, that I think there's something in smoothing the language. I, I revise a page 20, 30 times. And it's all about making those sentences move, making the language flow, making making giving it a rhythm that speaks to you below, you know, almost speaks to your heart. And if that rhythm is in there, it's easier to read. Uh, I've written whole pa passages of books that are in various poetic rhythms. I don't sell it that way. You know, it's just the scene requires it to be in a certain. Them. And I think that speaks to people in a way. And so, yeah, I, uh, I think it's part of the obligation of the writer, not just to dazzle you or do or tell you a good yarn, but to make it one that flows and is easy to read. And that doesn't mean dumbing it down. My publishers used to, in early days, criticize me because your vocabulary is too big. You've got to cut your vocabulary down. And I always thought that was that was contempt for the reader and for the idea that people out there are, oh, there's too, I used to say, I think it's the idea that anybody west of the Hudson River can't understand complicated language. And that was just wrong. And I never gave up on that. And uh, I, I think it's paid off. So yeah, I feel the same way as a reader. If I'm disappointed once, I might try the writer again, but probably not a third time. Right. I think this is another thing I, I've loved about watching your career is that no matter how long you're writing, you're still just as excited about creating a quality product as you were in the beginning. And I, I've been to a lot of these writers conferences where I've met some famous writers who now have like a whole entourage of people who are creating books for their brand and I'm just like I just don't get that you know and you've just always stayed true to your craft and so that's one of the reasons why you are my favorite writer so what do you think about this idea that so-and-so is a brand now and he needs an entourage to write his material uh it's 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 a book factory it used to be called a book factory um I once I thought it might be interesting to collaborate which is a different thing than just putting your name on things that other people write. Uh, and I tried to collaborate on a little series I did that reimagined the Frankenstein story in our time. And the first two books I had writers, uh, one of who was a very good friend, a dear friend. Uh, and I would give them a story outline, even though I don't outline my own stories. 
and they would write the first draft and then I would write subsequent drafts. And that was the idea of how this would work. And in each case, I got their script. There was nothing wrong with it. But I'd look at the first scene and think, no, there's a better way to open this. And I'd write a new opening scene. And the next thing I knew, I'd written a whole new novel. And I did that with both of them. And I finally said to them, I want to pay you off on, on your interest in these two stories because I'm not going to use what you wrote. And it isn't because there's anything wrong with it. It's just, I can't collaborate. And I, I, I like to say, yeah, this goes back to grade school when teachers would send my report card home and say, nice kid, but he doesn't work well with others. <laughs> I think that's part of being a writer though, right? I mean, you have to kind of go off by yourself to create something. Yeah, I, the thing that every writer has to sell, this is why these book factories or having other people write your books on a regular basis or co-write them on a regular basis is never going to produce anything lasting. And I, by lasting, I mean it for most of your lifetime. Uh, for one reason, uh, every writer has one thing above all else to sell, and that's his voice or her voice and his or her view of the world. And we're all different. We're all unique. Each of us is unique. And it's that uniqueness you're selling. And that comes out in publishers were frustrated with me because I write in different genres. Uh, and the early days, it was, you have to write in the same genre. And it has to be a narrow aspect of that genre. I mean, if you're writing detective stories, you can't write other kinds of suspense stories. And I just paid no attention to that and drove some early publishers crazy because I always believed that the reader was relating to your unique voice. And no matter what you wrote, that was going to be there. And yes, there's some readers that will say, oh, I don't want to read this one because it has a little science fiction element in it. Well, but some of them then will come along and say, gee, I didn't think I'd like that, but I did. The reason they did, because they like your voice and they like your view of the world. And that's all you need to sell in the end is that. And then you can write anything you want. Absolutely. And speaking of that, so like, I, I'm also curious about this idea of where our thoughts come from. Like we are bringing it through our unique um, machines here of the body, the mind and who we've become on this planet. Do you believe that our the ideas though, are they in the universe? And do, do you have ideas that come to you or do, are you thinking about this a little bit or does it start with a germ or how, how do you get inspired? It's uh... It's, a, it's fascinating where ideas come from. Uh, sometimes you know exactly where it came from. I remember I was coming home from a meeting at a studio on a screenplay and I was driving my wife's car and I wasn't in a good mood. You're never in a good mood coming out of a studio meeting. And I was, uh, and I, she had on her uh, CD deck Simon and Garfunkel and Paul Simon albums. And so I was playing that and this Paul Simon song called Patterns came on and it had a line in it, my life is made of patterns that can scarcely be controlled. And for some reason that line sparked in my mind the idea of what about a guy who's born, the night he's born, his father is in the uh, expectant father's lounge because his wife's about to give birth 
but he's also going to the other end of the hospital where his own father is dying of a stroke. So it's death and new coming life. And oh, yes, yes. It's a book called Life Expectancy. Yes. And what if the little colonel was, what if uh, on that night, this father had had a stroke and was and the grandfather of the boy going to be born is having this, had the stroke and cannot speak, he's aphasic, and suddenly sits up in bed just before he dies and says to the boy's father, five terrible days. And uh, the father says, what, what? And he says, write these down. And, he, and then he predicts that this boy is going to be born with syndactyly digits wedded that have to be surgically separated. He's going to weigh eight pounds, six ounces. He's going to be this long. You're going to name him Jimmy. Uh, and all of those things come true. And he also says there are five terrible days in this boy's life that starts when he's 20 something. That idea in five minutes evolved out of that Paul Simon line. One of my favorite of my own books ever is that book. Uh, then there's stuff like Odd Thomas that I don't know where that came from. I'm writing a book called The Face. I'm in the middle of it. And into my head came the line, my name is Odd Thomas. I lead an unusual life. I had no idea what that was about because it wasn't related to what I was writing. But I knew that was an opening to a novel. So I, I don't write by hand. I pulled over a yellow Leo tablet. I started writing by hand, just those two lines. And the next thing I knew, I had been writing for hours by hand and I had a first chapter uh, that I couldn't wait to finish the novel I was on to be able to get to that book. Where did that come from? I'll never know. Uh, that's what's so wonderful and mysterious about it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it makes you feel you're in contact with some higher creativity that just decides, okay, I'm not so sure Dean's smart about what he's been writing lately. Let me give him this. And, and there it is in your head. Uh, I know somebody had said, oh, it's always been there in your subconscious. And maybe sometimes that's true. But there are other times that I feel this is coming to you out of the universe in a way that you cannot comprehend. And there's no point even trying. Absolutely. Yeah, Odd Thomas is always one of all of our favorite characters who we love. And you know what? One of my other very, very favorite books of yours is The Good Guy. Uh. You have a lot of these. Um, I don't, I'm going to put a link to that one too. And all of these that we're talking about. Um, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but you always have these characters. They're good people. They're regular hardworking people. They're trying to have a life and then some stuff starts hitting the fan and then their whole life is, is up in smoke. And that the opening of that book is one of my very favorites of all time. I love it. We're in negotiations for a limited a TV series based on that. So I hope that comes to fruition. But yeah, it's, you know, I don't tend to write about, uh, uh, I don't tend to write about secret agents and James Bond type characters and that sort of thing. Uh, in this case, the lead character is a Mason. Uh, I, Velocity, the lead character is a bartender. Uh, Odd Thomas is a fry cook. Uh, the husband, the lead character is a landscaper. Uh, I like to write about people that I can more relate to. And then something enters their life uh, that uh, turns it upside down. Now, how do they cope with it? Because they're not trained to. When I have taken a character like Jane Hawk, 
who has all that training and has all that toughness, uh, then there is, has to be this tenure side to the character uh, that you don't know, yeah, they're tough as hell, but are they gonna survive this? Because you see this other side that bad guys can exploit as a weakness. Uh, and I, I particularly had a great fun with the good guy because of the dialogue between him and the woman he goes to. It was like those old, it was a very suspenseful novel, I think, but it's also sort of a screwball comedy because of their dialogue. And that was just a lot of fun to try to pull off. It's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, and, and Jane Hawk, um, one of the big themes is about suicide. So, you know, that, that also, you, you always have like bigger picture themes as well as trying to obviously entertain us. I thought that was really interesting as well. It's, it's a great series too. I mean, they all are. You know, we don't, it's worth our time and it's been an incredible ride. Absolutely. And speaking of nameless, so when you talked about secret agents, I mean, he kind of really does come across to me, nameless season two, everybody, you need this, um, as a secret agent because he's fully funded. He's got these flashy vehicles. He's going to all these nice places. He asks for X number of thousands and thousands of dollars. It just shows up. So it is a little bit secret agent-ish. And yet within him, like you said, he's got this thing, it's it's eating him alive, but he doesn't even know what it is. But we always sense within that, that it couldn't be that bad because we still love the guy. He's very lovable in the midst of the fact that he thinks he's done something horrible. I just he's, think it's very complicated. It's wonderful. I think he's, he's down to earth in the sense, when you find out who he is, you can understand how all this comes together. Uh, but uh before you find out who he is it's almost possible to believe that he came out of some pretty ordinary occupation or life and how he ended up in this is a mystery because he's he he's he's not he's not a snob he's not uh somebody that you would think of that came out of uh i don't want to give anything away but uh but he's uh He's got very down-to-earth values, and, and it comes out in things like he'll, he'll have a dinner, uh, he's, he's alone most of the time, and he, he'll have a dinner and he'll spend $30 on dinner and leave a $200 tip. And <laughs> because he has this sense of what other people's lives are like and, and what that can do for a day. And there's all those little things about him that, that, that kind of inner tenderness that gives him a dimension that made him more interesting to write about for me. The other thing I've got to bring up along those lines that made Nameless season two amazing. And really this is for all your books, in particularly in this one though, because Nameless is kind of this roving wanderer. He's all by himself. He's going from town to town. You know, I live in Texas right now. I've definitely been to the Panhandle, grew up in New Mexico. I've lived in Arizona. I've got a cousin in Chandler. You mentioned that. And I just can't help but think like, do you and Jerda and Elsa or Trixie, Anna, are you all like in your car just driving and doing road trips all the time? Where, I, I mean, I, I, if you haven't been doing it, you've had me fooled. I cannot believe the detail to which you've put me right in places. And because I've actually been in those places, 
Um, it's just so true to form and it's so entertaining. The characters that they meet and the people are very, very genuine. So do you all do road trips to get these ideas? We used to when we were younger. We've driven across country a few times back and then back. And uh, the northern route, southern route, uh, side trips and all that. We, we did that many years ago. And, uh, and we used to travel uh, more than we do now, which we don't do much, uh, around the West and the Southwest. Uh, so that's one reason I tend to set most of my stuff in Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, and New Mexico, because I know them. And uh, then when I have to set a story in Michigan or Arkansas or whatever, then that's, I have to draw upon what I remember of being there, but then the research comes in. And when I was a kid in college, I hated research. I hated going to the libraries. I would make stuff up in papers and attribute it to false sources. Don't do this, kids. But I never got caught at it. Uh, and now, as once I was a writer doing research, I found out this is one of the things I love doing. Uh, I love learning about places and things and, uh, and then finding out what details will be the most interesting to evolve into that. Uh, the panhandle becomes kind of important in this series to, yes. uh, to uh, nameless. In fact, I think if it was ever his chance to maybe get out of this life he's in and settle someplace quiet and and very down to earth, it would probably be in this little town in the Panhandle. Uh, and, uh, and that's something I like about him, that, uh, that he, he does see the beauty in small things and, and everyday life. Uh, and I always try to make sure that I capture that. That's part of what a writer should do. We live in an absolutely astoundingly beautiful world. And uh, it's not just that nature is beautiful, but uh, so many things are, so many mundane things that we take for granted. You know, that's another thing dogs do for you. You can walk a neighborhood uh, for years, and when you walk it the first time with the dog, you see all kinds of things the dog finds interesting that you had passed right over and didn't notice. And the dog starts making you look at things because of the pace the dog takes you through it. And, uh, and that's what I try to do when I'm writing. When I'm setting a scene, I don't want to bore you. I don't want five pages of description things. I just want to get the essence of the place and make you feel that is the place and, and make you feel it, see it, and smell it, and taste it all. You have definitely done that. That is absolutely true. It is amazing. So speaking of not getting to go anywhere, um, so how did you and Jerda and Elsa do with the pandemic? Oh, very well, because as a writer, I've been locked down social distancing a large part of my life. Yeah. So uh, the only bad thing was when uh, we eat out five nights a week, because Jerda works as much as I do yeah. and, and doesn't love cooking. So we eat at home on the weekends, eat out five nights a week, but we never eat out where we can't take the dog. So we take the dog in the patios. And the only bad thing in the COVID is when they closed down all restaurants for a few yeah. weeks. And I thought Jerry would lose your mind. <laughs> but we, we finally got through that and we were able to go back out to restaurants with patios and, and eat again with Elsa. So we got through COVID with, with, with uh, 
no problem. I, I hardly wore a mask any time during this because I was never where I was required to wear one. Right. Yeah. I'm, I live in Texas, so they're, they're not really into masks here. So, you know, the other thing, I guess we were talking, some friends of mine, were, we were talking about like, you know, a writer is a bit of an introvert because you have to stay alone to do your craft, but all the introverts, I found like, I felt like I got so much done and we were saying, yeah, it's like rise of the introverts, you know, <laughs> this spaceship's landing and the, the introverts are getting out of the ship, Dean, and we're going to take over humanity because it's really our time now, you know, shut-ins and everyone else is having to figure out what it's like to really, you know, lock up and have to be with themselves. I think it's been a very interesting time for humanity. Obviously, <laughs> it's, you agree? yeah, uh, I think some people have found it very, very difficult but, uh, and I understand that because I like people, I like to be around people uh, and I have to give that up more than usual because of what I do. So COVID added an extra thing on that, but we got through it perfectly fine. And, uh, uh, and I just got more of it. <laughs> there it is, yeah. So what's next now? I think you have a book coming out next year from what I understand, but are, are there other ones coming out later this year? You had the other Emily that just came out. That was yeah. in March. Oh my gosh, yes. It's a good one. Yeah. That was a uh, spooky love story. I've never quite written a spooky love story. Yeah, I have a book finished that comes out, I think in March called Quicksilver. It's the name of the lead character. His name is Quinn Quicksilver. He was abandoned at three days old in a, a thatched basket in the middle of an isolated highway in Arizona. And he has no idea who his parents are or where he came from or anything else, but we're gonna find out. And then I'm almost finished with a book called The Big Dark Sky, which is uh, kind of uh, unusual. And it, it deals with some issues that society is moving into. But I think they ought to be very careful about proceeding with. But it's a sort of uh, dark story. But also, it's full of characters that I, I love and I hope readers will love. And my stuff never ends in a pessimistic way. Uh, yeah. I'm an optimist, so my stuff tends to end in a hopeful note, always. That's the other thing that I think everyone loves about your work. Always the optimist. There's lots of redemption and wonderful characters. This has been, um, I've just loved your books, just like everyone else. It's been a complete joy to connect with you. And I'm just wishing you tons and tons of success with Nameless season two. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I hope everyone gets out there and checks it out for their summer reading this year. Oh, thank you. You're we got to hire you as a publicist, I think. This is... I'm one of the big fans, Dean. So, <laughs> hey, we'll talk about that. All right. Well, it has been a joy. And friends, you've got to check out Dean's new series. It's phenomenal. You will not be able to put it down. It's very quick. It will entertain you. Check it out. Nameless Season 2, Amazon Original Stories. We'll be right back. Hey friends, it's Dr. Shelley. If you are experiencing anxiety, depression, or trauma, check out my book, Meet Your Karma, The Healing Power of Past Life Memories. 
This is a book filled with amazing case histories of clients who have successfully healed their anxiety and trauma, and it has a lot of guided journeys in it designed to help you get through these challenging times. Click on my website at pastlifelady.com, follow the book links, and check out Meet Your Karma, The Healing Power of Past Life Memories today. Welcome back to Healing Arts. I'm Dr. Shelley Kerr. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. All right, we've done it again. We've completed this bonus episode. Let me promise you, I have some other really amazing famous people who I am reaching out to right now. I'm not going to spill the beans on who they may or may not be, but um, they some of them, I had to go jump for joy because we are in discussions about having them on the, the Healing Arts podcast, and you're going to love who's coming up. But if you have somebody who you would like me to reach out to, you know, again, send me an email. Remember, I don't do Facebook Messenger much. I'm not a, I, I just don't have time for it. So if you'd send me a real email to Shelly at ShellyCare.com. Just go on Past Life Lady. You'll see my contact details there, pastlifelady.com. Um, I will try to get your bucket list guests booked on the Healing Arts Podcast. And so while we're on this idea of making our dreams come true, what are your dreams? I mean, what are things that you've been thinking about that you know you still haven't done yet or still haven't quite manifested yet because I'm telling you I think good things are on the way for all of us we've been through a lot but there's good that can come from all of this so think about what you really want write it down and then just hey give it a shot that's what I did just start taking an action towards making those things happen and you never know maybe you're gonna have to sit down soon and come up with a new bucket list (laughs) I don't know I hope so that would be great. So meanwhile, just know I'm going to be working on one for myself. I hope you take care of yourself and have a beautiful week. And we will see you next time on Healing Arts. Hey, friends, I want you to check out my Past Life Lady YouTube channel that has tons of free videos that teach you how to do all kinds of things from energy healing, gem and mineral healing. I've got guided imagery up there for you. So check it out. Just go over to YouTube and type the words Past Life Lady in the search bar and hit subscribe. And I'll look forward to welcoming you over to my channel today. Thank you.